You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you're not there already, that's going to be our text for this morning. And let's bow together as we pray. Lord, though the wrong does seem oft so strong, you are the ruler yet. That is our confidence and our hope. It is the confidence and hope of all your people whom you have taught to trust your sovereignty and your providence. We pray that you would show us that in the pages of Scripture today and that you would be honored through the teaching and the listening and the obedience to your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a lot about the workings of God in history that is still a mystery to us. And though we see how God works, we see glimpses of how he works through history, much of what God does and has done and is doing and will do still remains a mystery to us. And that is by his providence, that is by design that God has not revealed absolutely everything to us. He has revealed enough to us to warrant our trusting Him. We see enough of God's nature and His dealings in creation. We know enough of Him in our conscience. We see enough of Him revealed in Scripture. We see Him working throughout history. We know enough of Him revealed in the person of Christ, recorded for us in the pages of Scripture, to warrant the demand that we place our confidence and our trust in Him and that we rest in Him and in His sovereignty and in His providence even though we don't know all of the answers to all of life's questions. That is ultimately where we as the people of God have to, have to rest. We have to lay our head down upon the pillow of God's sovereignty each and every night and be willing to trust Him though we, of the, based upon those things that we know, be willing to trust Him for and in the things that we do not know that He has not revealed to us. William Cowper wrote that famous hymn, God Works in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. That is a, an old poem that was put to a hymn. And if I had known before Thursday of this week, I would have requested that we sing that this morning because we sing that rewritten by Sovereign Grace so that the, the lyrics are somewhat updated and it's a bit of a different tune than originally. But here are the words. I want you to listen to this and contemplate. And we've sung it enough that you might even be able to recite these words on your own. And I hope that that is the case. Cowper or Cooper, I think it's pronounced Cooper, though it's spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R. People don't always pronounce their names the way that they should. And so I have to do due diligence to make sure that I not tip my hat to that. Here's, how, here's what he writes. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. Cowper was a man who struggled constantly throughout his life from the time that he was saved all the way until the day that he died with chronic depression. 
And he could, and, and, and this hymn was written out of his struggling with chronic and relentless depression his whole life. And Cowper said we can look at the things that God is doing and trust him in the midst of that, understanding and believing that behind a frowning providence, what, what we see as God's frown toward us is a smiling providence behind that. There's a smiling face behind God's frowning providence. We, we may see the storm and think that it is intended to harm us, but it, but it is not. And Cowper says we can trust God in the midst of all of life's uncertainties and unknowns because of what we know about God. And I love that last line, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Eventually in time and in eternity, God will make clear all that we do not understand now. We'll see it all revealed. We'll see justice is done. We will see righteousness vindicated. We will see his name exalted and vindicated. We will see how all of the mysterious providences of all of human history have worked together for the glory of God and for the good of his people. But in time, those mysteries are not revealed to us. In fact, most of what God is doing, most of it is hidden from us. We don't understand the secret workings of his providence. And, and if you think that it is, is your, your desire in life and your intention in life to examine everything and to come up with all of the answers to life, to answer everything so that there is no mystery left and nothing hidden from your contemplation and your understanding and your putting together all of life's pieces, if that is your design and intention, you are going to die a frustrated man or woman because you cannot do that. Nobody can do that. We have to be content to live with the mystery that God has worked into creation as it is. He has kept certain things hidden from us by his design and as his people we have to rest in that. Now, if this idea of being frustrated over not finding the ultimate answers of life sounds familiar to you, it is because this is not the first time that Solomon has brought this subject up in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, we saw this back in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, we looked at it on Father's Day when we talked about how bitter women were. Do you remember that? Yeah, those were good times had by all. Chapter 7, verse 23, Solomon says, I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation. The idea there is an explanation behind everything, the explanation of explanations. And to know the evil of folly and the foolish of madness. Verse 26, and I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another, to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have not found one man, I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, and they have sought out many devices. Seeking to find an explanation for everything, what did Solomon find? Men and women are without virtue and without wisdom. And God made man upright, and he has sought out many devices, and we are sinners. That is as close of an explanation for all of reality as you could possibly hope to find. That God made men upright, and we are fallen and broken, and that is the explanation for the way that life is. But all of the mysteries of providence are not yet revealed to us, and we don't fully understand it. So Solomon has wrestled with this before. And so now it shouldn't surprise us that having come to the end of a very frustrating search back in chapter 7, that we get to the end of chapter 8, and Solomon picks the same subject up again. But this time he brings in a different element. And as we've seen in this middle section of Ecclesiastes, even though Solomon repeats some of the themes every time, we give a bit of a different perspective, and he does that now with this same frustrating search for answers. Now he lands us in chapter 9, verse 1, at the sovereignty of God, being in the hand of God, and how we are to rest in that. 
So this is something different from what we saw before. And chapter 9, verse 1 is an example of how the division, chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not inspired. Because if, if, if whoever did that had been doing it right, they would have started chapter one or chapter 9 after verse 1 because that's really the next section. Chapter 9, verse 1 kind of belongs with the section before it. I want you to get an, an overview of, of sort of the, the, the whole context here moving into chapter 9. In chapter 8, verse 16 through 9-1, Solomon deals with this issue of what we do not know, the mysteries of divine sovereignty and providence. Chapter 9, verse 1, he, he lands us in the lap of providence and says, wise men and the righteous and their deeds are in the hand of God, so we are to rest in his sovereignty. Then beginning in chapter 9, verse 2 through verse 6, he deals with the subject of death. We've got to look forward to that next week, right? Chapter 9, verse 7 he is another one of these pleasure passages where Solomon commends to us that we live life. In, in light of the fact that we are going to die soon, Solomon says you should eat and drink and enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. That's the last pleasure passage, or carpe diem passage, if you will. And that ends with verse 9, verse 10. In light of death, we are to do whatever our hand finds to do with all of our might because you're going to die and there is no knowledge, there is no skill, there's nothing on the other side of that that, you, that will have anything to do with this life. So live for today, live today in the, for the glory of God, I would say. And then verses 11 and 12, he reminds us again of how sudden death can be. In the beginning of verse 13 of chapter 9, he picks up more subjects of wisdom and that continues all the way into chapter 12. So that's kind of an overview of it. Now let's look at the search that Solomon tells us about in verse 16 and 17 and going into chapter 9, verse 1. Verse 16, we'll read together verses 16 and 17. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. That describes the search, and Solomon's disappointment with the search. Notice the search as he describes it in verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth. And, I, and here he is describing man's activity. That is why the ESV translates it, the busyness that is done on the earth or the business that is done. He, he's examining two realms of activity. Man's activity in verse 16 and God's activity in verses 16 and 17. And these two realms were the, the realms that Solomon studied and, and he examined carefully. All of man's activities, the business and the busyness that is done under the sun. All that man does. We are busy creatures, aren't we? And throughout the book, Solomon has talked about all the ways that we are busy and the activities that we do. Our living, our loving, our labor, our dying, our hatred and our love and our activities and our children and the business ventures and our building and our moving and our traveling and our studies and philosophy and wisdom and our enjoyment of nature. All of that activity, Solomon says, I have examined all that man does so much so that he, he says in kind of a parenthetical way in verse 16, even though one should never sleep day or night. You see that? Solomon is describing a restless obsession with something. And the question is whether Solomon is describing his own obsession with activity and his own sleeplessness, his own, uh, what do you call that? Insomnia, that's the word I was looking for. His own insomnia or whether Solomon is describing the insomnia and the sleeplessness of all men. If he's describing his own insomnia, Solomon is saying this. I can examine and look at all of the activity that is done under the sun. And even if I were to not sleep day or night, and I gave myself to this studious activity, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I could not discover the work that has been done under the sun. I could not come up with an answer. 
I could not come up with a, an, a, an answer, an explanation for all of life's activities and the hidden things which are not revealed. I cannot know that. Or it might be that Solomon is describing here all of the activity that man does that makes himself weary, in which case he's referring again to what he talked about back in chapter 2, verse 23, when Solomon describes all of mankind with these words, because all his days, that is us as mankind, all his days, is pain, all his, days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Do you remember that sleeplessness that Solomon described back in chapter 2? We work and we labor and we strive and we never stop to ask ourselves, for whom am I working and depriving myself of pleasure? All day long he works, all day long we work, and at night our mind does not rest. Solomon is examining that. Now it might be that Solomon is talking about both his own restless obsession with studying to find out the, the answers to life's questions, and he is also describing the restless activity of all of mankind. We are busy people, that is what he is describing. And not only is he examining man's sphere of activity in the book of Ecclesiastes, but he is also studying all the works of God. Look at chapter 8, verse 16, verse 17, sorry. And I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Not only did he examine all of man's activities, but all of God's activities. Now, there are certain things about God's works that you and I can know. You can look out at creation. You can see how God cares for the animals and the plants and nature and creation and how he has designed thing, things as they are designed. We can look at that. We can understand certain things about how God works and why God works the way that he does. We can discern different aspects of God's character, that he is wise, that he is infinite, that he is eternal, that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful. There are elements of God's nature that we can discern and study and see in creation. Enough of God's nature to hold us morally accountable so that even those who have never heard the gospel and never had possession of a Bible will be held morally accountable to God for the light that they have rejected. We, we know a lot about God from creation. We can see his works of providence and how he works in history and how things happen. And you look back upon it and you say, wow, isn't that, isn't that interesting how that worked out just so? These, these events just lined up that way so that it happened this way instead of that way. Isn't that providential? Isn't that interesting? And we can see a little bit of God's hand in providence. But how much of it do we not know? So much, right? Why do kingdoms rise and fall? Why do economies collapse? And I can explain these things, I think, from a human perspective. But I'm talking about the overarching purpose, the overarching plan behind these things. Why do dynasties rise and then dynasties fall? Why do republics crumble? Why was the United States founded two centuries ago instead of 20 centuries ago? Why is that in the plan of God? Why is Rome no more? Babylon, no more. Persia, no more. Greece, no more. Why do these nations rise up like that and then they are gone into the dust? There are entire nations and entire people groups that there are no descendants of them even alive today. They are utterly wiped out. How does that happen? How is it that the Jews did not have a land and then they were brought into the land and then they were kicked out of the land and now they're back in the land? What is going on with all of that? What is God doing in human history through all of these things? And don't, don't forget that as Solomon is asking these questions and saying that he is seeking for an answer, we are not too far removed from that quandary that we looked at last week in verse 14. There is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, that there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. You can study the works of men and the works of God all day long and you will not be able to answer the question that's in verse 15. Ultimately, why is it? What is God doing? We understand why the wicked prosper, that he's judging them, that that is something that happens. We understand that for a period of time, the unrighteous 
dominate the righteous and oppress the righteous. We understand that sometimes the righteous are allowed to suffer for a period of time. We understand that all these things will be righted eternally. But what is God doing behind the scenes in all of that? Have you ever wondered that? How is it that God can work out his plan for my life down to the minutest detail? And he can do the exact same thing for your life down to the minutest detail. And yet you and I are both living separate lives in separate places. We, we are, they intersect here in this spiritual community as part of this body of believers. And he is doing this not just for you and I. He is doing this for billions upon billions of people all over the face of the planet. And in the midst of doing all of that, in orchestrating all of that for his glory and for our good, he is also accomplishing his plan for nations and for cultures and for the church. And he does this over all of human history for years yet unknown into the future when he wraps it all up. And in all of that, he accomplishes two primary goals. The most glory that he can get out of this created order and the most good that he can do for those who are his. How in the world does God do that? Do you know that? And how much of all that God is doing do we see from our little perch here in North Idaho looking out over all of the plan and purposes of God, past, present, and future, and all of the activities that He is doing? How much of it do we see from our vantage point? Is it even a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction? And even if we were to, as Solomon says, give ourselves to this task day and night, never sleep, and even if we were to study these things laboriously, we're going to be tremendously frustrated. Look what he says in verse 17. This is the frustration of this work. We can study this laboriously, and I saw the work of God. Verse 17, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover Notice what he says three times. You cannot discover it, you cannot discover it, and you cannot discover it. Three times he says this. What is he, what is he getting at? No, no matter how much labor you put into it, no matter how much wisdom you apply to it, no matter how much you may search and seek and think and, and, and dive into it, you will never understand the mysteries of the workings of divine providence. All that God is doing, and even though all of that activity is also encompasses all that men do, can never unfold all of that. The mysteries of God's providence cannot be known. They are mysterious to us. And there's no amount of effort and no amount of years, no amount of reading that will ever uncover the hidden things of God. This is what Scripture teaches. There are certain things that are hidden and there are certain things that are revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our sons forever so that we may observe all the commandments of this law. Here's what Moses is saying. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Most of the stuff God has not revealed. He has revealed enough for us to trust Him, enough for us to have eternal life, enough for us to be sanctified in the truth. He has revealed all that is necessary for us, and what He is revealed, has revealed to us is sufficient for us to know and to comprehend so that we may live in obedience to Him. Has He revealed everything to us? No. Scripture doesn't say that He has revealed everything to us. Most of what is true has been kept a mystery from us so that we might walk with Him in obedience. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? Job 9, verse 10 
God does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Job 11, verse 7. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. What do you do with all of that? It's unfathomable. And I could go on and on with prophets and psalms that just describe God's ways as higher and further above us, and we are down here and He is up there. And anytime anybody comes along and says, I have the answer to it all, I have the secret of life, I can unwrap the mystery of all of existence, don't walk but run away from them. They do not. Solomon says at the end of verse 17, though the wise man should say, I know it, he doesn't know it. Why? Because those things cannot be known. We have to be content to live with that mystery. Do you realize that most of the errors in the history of the church have come about because people are not willing to live with mystery? The doctrine of the Trinity Three persons, one being, one substance, one God. But because that is difficult for us to comprehend, because there is nothing like it in all of creation, no analogies, no illustrations, no pictures, no shadows or hints of it at all, though there is nothing like it, we can't, some people cannot be content with that mystery to say that I believe that God exists in three persons and one God. So they begin to confound and confuse the persons, and you, then you get into modalism, or you begin to, to mess it up and say, well, there are three beings who are all God, and so there are three gods. Because you can't live with the mystery, because people can't live with the mystery, they make the error. And the same, it is the same with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That God is completely sovereign. And before the foundations of the world, He chose a people to bring to His Son so that the Son might die for them and redeem them flawlessly and secure them eternally for His glory. Absolute divine sovereignty in all things. He rules the nations. Scripture says He dwells in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. And nobody can say to Him, why hast thou done this? Or make God give an account for what he has done. He is free and sovereign in all things. Yet man is absolutely responsible. Responsible for his moral evil. Responsible for the choices that he makes. Responsible for his rejection of the truth. So culpably and morally, uh, so morally culpable for that evil and for those choices that he deserves an eternal judgment for rejecting that truth. God is divinely sovereign and men are responsible to, to, to make choices and to repent and to believe both of those things are true. But if you can't live with that mystery, and you say, I've got to resolve this, then you're going to get off into hyper-Calvinism, which teaches that God is sovereign and man is not responsible. Or you're going to get off into Arminianism, which teaches that God is not sovereign, that man is sovereign because we are responsible and that we all make our own choices. Rather than staying right in the middle and holding on to that mystery and saying that I can affirm both of these, that God is sovereign and that men are responsible. And so it is with sanctification, and so it is with the writing of Scripture. How is it? How is it? that I must labor and work and strive and put forth the effort in order to grow and to pursue holiness. That seems like it is all my work. And yet, though I might try and exhaust myself to do that, I understand it is God who is in me, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Right? Is it one or the other? It is both. And if you get off into one side and say, it's all the work of God, then you're going to be the pietist who says, I, I just sit back and I, I do absolutely nothing. Or is that the quietist? Quietist or pietist, I forget which one it is. But the, the wingnut who sits back and just says, uh, it's, it's all the work of God, I don't have to do anything. I can, just, I can just live my life and God will make me holy and I don't have to pursue righteousness. Or you get off into the other ditch and to say, well, it is all my work and that becomes very, I guess that's pietistic, sort of the, uh, the, the pursuing of righteousness by my own works and my own deeds. You have to be content to live with that mystery. That is what Solomon says. And so this is how he concludes it in chapter 9, verse 1. For I have taken all this to my heart and explained it. Righteous men and wise men and their deeds are in the hand of God. 
That's where he leaves us. All that mystery, can't understand the answers, can't know the answers, but where are we at? We're in the hand of God. That is, an, that is imagery of his sovereignty. And for some, the idea that we are in the hand of God is tremendously comforting. And for others, the notion that we are in the hand of God is tremendously terrifying. And rightly so. Now for the believer, the imagery of being in God's hand, that means that for us as believers, that means, that means righteousness, it means protection, it means grace, it means the place of his goodness and his provision, that we are in the hand of God and so nobody can take us out of that hand. That is imagery that you see all the way throughout Scripture. Psalm 48, verse 10, As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. I want to be in that hand, in the hand of righteousness, where God deals with me according to his righteousness and gives me his righteousness. Psalm 95, verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. John 10, Jesus used this imagery, and I give eternal life to my sheep, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Psalm 31, verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. Right? The hand is the place where I want to be when I die, and be able to say to God, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why? Because for the believer, that is the place of security and rest and provision and protection, and so being there is tremendously comforting. And so what is our response? Our response as a believer is to rest in that. But for the unbeliever, Hebrews 10 verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why is that the case? Because the unbeliever must face a God who is just and holy and righteously indignant toward them for their sin. And because they will not repent and they will not turn from that sin and acknowledge it and embrace Jesus Christ to have peace with God, they will be eternally the enemies of God. So to fall into his hands as an impenitent, unredeemed individual at the end of your life is a terrifying thing. Ultimately, believers and unbelievers are both in the hand of God. The only question is, is God's hand favorably disposed to you or, or disfavorably opposed to you? That's the issue. For the believer, we are in the hand of God and he is favorably disposed to the one who trusts in his son. The unbeliever, they are in God's hand as well, but God is in no way favorably disposed to them. So as believers, this should cause us to trust and to rest in his sovereignty. It's either that or complete despair. It's either that or complete despair. If you can't have the answers, you can't understand the explanation of it, some people say that then the whole thing is just meaningless, the whole thing is useless, and it is vanity, it is emptiness, it is futility, from now until the end of time. And there's no overarching purpose in this. If, if, if there is no answer to all of these things, and I can't understand it, some people conclude then that there is no God or that he is not sovereign or that he has wound this whole thing up and sort of set us aside. He's just waiting for the whole package to unwind before he returns and that he's not intimately involved in it. He's not doing anything through it. And that leads one to despair, like Macbeth in Shakespeare's play. that He says, life is just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's despair. Life is just a story told by a raving madman, full of activity and sound and noise, but ultimately means absolutely nothing. It's either that or we trust in God. Francis Bacon said we ought not to draw down the mysteries of God and submit them to our reason. That's good advice. Had to be good advice coming from a man whose last name was Bacon. Of course he's going to have good advice. We ought not draw down the mysteries of God and submit them to our reason. As if, as if we sit on the throne, judging God in his ways. He is sovereign, he's providential, and the point of scripture is we can trust him. Because he is sovereign, because he is good, 
And because we can rest in a providence that is working out all things for his own glory and for our good. God is sovereign in these things. You don't, you don't determine whether or not you will avoid suffering in your life. You don't determine your lot, your position, the time of your birth, or the time of your death. That is not left up to you. And, and rightly so. You might say, well, I'm going to eat well, and I'm going to exercise, and I'm going to stay fit, and I'm going to live a, a ripe old age. You don't know. God may will for you to suffer a long terminal disease from tomorrow until the end of your life. You can't know that. You can't determine that. He must determine that. You can say, I'm going to accumulate all this wealth and then I'm going to retire at the age of 50. I'm just going to sit in the shade and tour the country with my family and see all the sights that I wanted to see. That may be your plan, but it might be the plan and purpose of God to take everything from you when you're 49. You don't know that. It could be anything that awaits you. Look at verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Anything can be on that docket. You and I don't, dis, don't determine that. And listen, I would not want that any other way. I certainly would not want some blind providence working out the details of my life. I certainly would not want the, the details of history and the details of my life and your life left up to chance and random processes or the, the unseen, unforeseen events and choices that other people make. I would not want that. I want everything determined for me by a loving God who's working out all things for my good and for His glory, who is able to orchestrate all of the activities of human activity and divine activity so that He might accomplish an ultimate good that is for His glory and for my good. That's what I want. I wouldn't want it any other way, would you? I want God to be sovereign. I want to rest in that sovereignty and trust in that sovereignty knowing that He can work all of these things for good. He can orchestrate all of that for His glory. And for us, and accomplish all of his purposes in the meantime. I don't have to have all the answers in order to trust in the one who does have all of the answers. And that ultimately is where our heads have to rest. That is ultimately where our affections have to be. Look at the end of verse 1. When Solomon says, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, anything awaits him. It's kind of a curious statement that he makes there about love and hatred. And I want to deal with that just for a second. There's some question as to whether or not when Solomon describes love and hatred, whatever might await man, there's some question whether he is describing God's affections or, don't think of, I was going to use the word emotions, but that's not the right word because God doesn't have emotions the way that you and I have emotions. He's not subject to them. Um, God has affections. He has passions. He has desires. He has, he does feel things, but not in the way that we do. So there's some question here as to whether Solomon is saying that a man does not know whether God's going to love him or hate him, whether it's love or hatred that awaits him, or whether Solomon is saying that love and hatred are human emotions, that these are human affections that might come our way, and we have no way of determining that. Now, those who believe that Solomon is here describing a love and hatred for God would say that love and hatred are ways of describing whether God is for you or against you. In other words, if God is favorably disposed to you, if you are righteous and you have repented and you are one of his, then God loves you and that he is favorably disposed to you so that that hand of providence is working for your good. But if you are impenitent and unredeemed and a rebel and a warrior against God, that, that Solomon then describes God being against you in terms of that hatred. Now, that is those who believe that these are God's affections, that's how they would describe that. Either God is for you or he is against you. From the human perspective, it would appear or feel to us as if God loves us or hates us, depending on which side of that equation that we are on. Now, I don't think that Solomon is here describing God's affections. I think he is describing human emotions or human affections of love and hatred. You'll notice down in verse 6, 
Where Solomon is speaking of the fact that all men die, he says, indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. What is he describing in verse 6? He's describing human affections, human love, and human hatred. And I think that he is describing the same thing here in chapter 9, verse 1. Even though he says that we are in the hand of God and man does not know whether it is love or hatred that awaits him, anything could happen to him. He's not describing God's love or hatred or how we would experience his favor or disfavor. Solomon is describing human emotions or human reactions of love and hatred. And this, this would fit better with the context because remember, if, verse, if chapter 9 verse 1 is describing God loving us or, or hating us, what Solomon would be saying is that the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God and the righteous and the wise do not know whether God is favorably disposed to them or unfavorably disposed to them. That can't be right, can it? No, the righteous know how God feels about them because they have been given the righteousness of God, because they have repented, because God is favorably disposed to them. So Solomon is not saying, hey, the righteous, we don't know how God's going to feel about us. That's what he would have to be saying in chapter 9, verse 1, if he's talking about divine emotions or divine feelings. We don't know how God's going to feel about us. Well, he has already told us just a couple verses earlier, it will be well for the one who fears God, who fears God openly. We saw that last week. The one who fears God, it will go well with him. In an eternal sense, we know that God is favorably disposed to that one. So I think he is saying the same thing here. So this would be human emotion, which would fit the context. Remember what we saw last week about what happens to the wicked in the very city in which they do their wickedness? What, what happens to them? They're buried, and then they are what? Praised. They're lauded with affection and honor and love and approbation and all these good things that come upon the wicked. Even though they do these things in the very city in which they die, they're buried in that city, and then they're praised for their wickedness. The oppressed praise their oppressors. Right? Those who bury the wicked praise the wicked for all of the wickedness that they did in the city. And we laud them and honor them. We looked at that last week. Well, I think that this is, Solomon is, what he's saying here is how the world looks at us or what men get, whether it is love or hatred from people, that is under the hand of God. Man doesn't know what is going to happen to him. So the wicked might do wickedness in a city and then they're praised in that city. Who would have thought that that was the case? What sane individual would think that people would be praised for their wickedness? And yet that's what happens, right? We can't see that coming. You would never expect that. Sometimes wicked people are praised for their wickedness. Sometimes wicked people are despised for their wickedness. Nobody names their dog Nero. Nobody names their dog Hitler. Nobody names their dogs those things. They certainly don't name their children that. They don't even name the dogs that. Why? Because we despise certain wicked individuals, and yet, mysteriously, People love certain wicked individuals. How do you explain that? You don't know whether in doing wickedness, people are going to respond with love or hatred. It's the same thing with being righteous. Some righteous men are loved and honored and applauded, even in the city and amongst the peers and in the very generation in which they live. They live so righteously that nobody speaks ill of them, and people love them. And some righteous people are despised by people. They're hated by people. And, and there's no predicting what the response is going to be. So I think this is what Solomon is saying. For the, rise and, for the wise and the righteous, we're in the hand of God. And even being righteous and wise, you do not know, you cannot know whether people will love you or people will hate you. But ultimately, it does not matter because we're in the hand of God. And in that, we rest. And in that is our confidence and our comfort as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are righteous and good and that you have orchestrated and planned the events of our lives so that we might accomplish your purposes flawlessly. 
We thank you that in your sovereignty, you do all those things that please you. You accomplish all of your purposes. Nobody can ward off your hand or say to you, what have you done? Know that you are working out an eternal plan, that you have chosen a people and none of them will perish because you save us and secure us and sanctify us everlastingly. And so we thank you that you are worthy of our confidence and our trust. And help us to live with that mystery, to be content to trust in your sovereignty and your providence, and to, and to be content that all of our questions are not answered. We love you. We thank you as your people that you have graced us and, and given us eternal life. And we pray that you would instill these things deep into our hearts, that we may rest our head upon your sovereignty in difficult times, and that you may be glorified through us in our obedience and our trust in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.